0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads dot com.
1: Full vowel moment. I like Laird Hamilton, Bethany (laughs) Bethany Hamilton, I like Kelly Slater.
0: Continuing our unintentional string of episodes with surf writers, I bring to you a conversation with Derek Riley. Classifying Derek as a surf writer isn't quite fair, actually. His talents and contributions to surf media are a fair bit more robust, but that said, his writing style does kind of succinctly synthesize the style of his contributions, And if I made an argument last week that Drew Campion could be credited with shepherding surf culture's presentation from a conservative sport of kings into a lackadaisical, spicoli counterculture stereotype, then Derek Riley could be credited with influencing and giving voice to a subculture of surfers who definitely still like to party, but also have intellectual curiosity beyond surfing, a keen eye for aesthetic and a modicum of vanity his list of employers include australian surfing life surf europe waves along with publishing articles in surfer tracks surfer's journal and penthouse magazine riley co-founded stab magazine in 2004 alongside sam mcintosh and in beachgrid in 2014 alongside chas smith in late 2017 he published wednesdays with bob a book about Australia's 23rd Prime Minister. And just last month, he published his second book, Gulpilil, about indigenous Australian dancer and actor David Gulpilil. Prior to any of that, however, Riley developed his own interests and aesthetic as a blackjack dealer, a bartender, and later a boat captain, a story that he shares here in this episode. And now I'm quoting from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. Quote, acknowledging that his two greatest literary influences were Mad Magazine and National Lampoon, Riley often put his cheerful and profanity-laced writing style to use in short bursts of schoolboy comedy. But Riley also wrote long, well-crafted articles on subjects like the elitism of surf resorts and how surf competitions force local wave riders out of the water. In 2010, when asked what he liked about surfing, Riley answered the feeling of power and arrogance and sexy. And when he was asked what he didn't like, he said that everybody feels the need to talk about it so much. End quote. And none of this actually could have been possible today without the support of Visla. You know Visla for their clothing, their surf films, and importantly for them supporting shapers, laminators, and artists. Their Seven Seas wetsuit was also featured in Beach Grit's new film Once Upon a Time in New Zealand. Each step of Vistla's wetsuit production has been re-engineered to create less environmental impact from upcycled materials in the knee pads, to using limestone based neoprene and rubber from recycled car tires, to a yarn dyeing process that saves water and reduces energy consumption. Vistla's wetsuits and much of their clothing line actually not only look, feel, and wear great. But they also represent meaningful steps towards a more sustainable model for living and consumption. Support them through visla.com and through your local retailer. They've done a great job partnering with retailers in most places that have been around the world, so you should be able to find them in your local. Thank you to Visla for supporting today's show. And without further ado, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Derek Wright.
1: you doing in the U.S.? I'm um, doing a little uh, a little job up in San Francisco, living in Metallica. From Beach Grit? Expanding into music content? No, just oh. it was actually a side gig. Oh, is but it? But it was fun. Had a, lot of, had a lot of fun. They were interesting men. Are they? Yeah, so really. So you spend one-on-one time with them? Yeah, I had about, um, we had to wait about an hour or an hour and a half to see them and um, some other stuff was happening and then James is coming hung out with us for a while. So that was pretty cool. And then um, had about an hour and a half with the band chatting interesting yeah good guys um kirk's a piece of gold because you know he surfs right yeah yeah so he he surfs and lives in uh honolulu and uh he had some very funny stories
0: did he have any awareness of beach grid or you or what you do
1: um i'm I'm sure he didn't express those sentiments
0: (laughs) would that feel validating if he did no
1: really no you don't care you know i don't um identify myself as a surf journalist or surfer or any of those sorts of things something i do like to do and and i love writing about it and i love the whole thing i love it i love pretty much everything about surfing but i certainly don't feel validated if someone you know would if kirk Hammett knew who i was or something you know how do you identify um i identify as i don't identify as a writer um, I just identify as a, as a kid from the suburbs who's just, in my, in my view, I just feel like I've accidentally overachieved. I've been very, very lucky. And I just feel like the gods have smiled on me my whole life. So everything that happens to me just feels like a um, yeah, gift from the heavens.
0: I think that's a good posture to maintain. Like it'll always make you feel happy and gratitude. Yeah, and that everything sort of
1: that's happened, like I did a, a this through a bizarre set of circumstances, I ended up doing a book with uh, Australia's greatest prime minister. It was like doing, you know, Charles de Gaulle or John F. Kennedy or something. And then a year later, he was dead. So I became suddenly this expert on this prime minister. And I went to his uh, memorial at the Sydney Opera House, and I'm in the in the foyer, with the national broadcaster interviewing me, this kid from the suburbs, as the as the expert on this um, on the great prime minister. And then I was at the after party afterwards. There's only about a hundred people there. I looked around. There's ex prime minister, ex prime minister, ex prime minister, ambassadors and whatever, and there's me. Wild. Yeah, so everything that I have uh, had happened to me. I feel very, very lucky.
0: uh, So I'm sure there's lots of luck involved, uh, but you got to deliver on the goods and you have to have talent and all that sort of stuff. So what what would make you feel validated? Like if somebody, maybe not an interview with Metallica, but something like that, you spent a year or two with him on, what was it, Wednesdays? Yep. Wednesdays with Bob? Yeah, Wednesdays with Bob, yeah. So you're spending a tremendous amount of time putting a bunch of effort into it how could it not feel validating if uh, after it gets published somebody comes up to you and goes, "Hey man, really appreciated that." I guess, that I guess so. Not-
1: but I guess validation feels like is something that you need to, because for something to be valid, it's like invalid until that happens. And I never felt invalid. Gotcha. You know because I always felt happy and healthy and and um, and I'm certainly not. I wouldn't call myself. Uh, an eternal optimist, but I feel like if I wake up in the morning and the and the skies and isn't, isn't there, there isn't a nuclear cloud above me and I'm breathing and I can get out of bed, I feel so happy and so lucky. I like get up and I make my bed and yeah, so, you know, so everything that everything that happens validates me, and I, I don't really need any validation from anyone. But the fact that you get television stations calling you and radio stations calling wanting to do stuff all the time, it's a good feeling, mm-hmm. but I, but I wouldn't call it validation no. And my and my new book is with a. Um, famous Australian actor who's indigenous. And, um, and part, as part of that book, I had to interview all these great Australian actors. So it was great. So I went from one side all the politicians and now every other icon in my life. So I went on the political side, now the arts. And um, so it's been a very sort of fun ride, but yeah.
0: Did that become available to you because of your, the success of Wednesdays with Bob?
1: Yeah, so, it's a, so Hawk was a triple bestseller. So I sold nearly 30,000 copies, which in Australia is a lot. And That's it's pretty awesome. much one for every everyone's uncle and dad and brother, you know. And uh, so, so I got this one, and uh, and this is going to be interesting because the, the actor's a guy called David Gulpilil, and he's an Aboriginal, full-blooded Aboriginal man who didn't see a white person until he was eight, and he was scouted by a British director in 1969 to star in this film called Walkabout, which ended up being a, a – one of the hundred greatest films of all time, according to the guardian okay. and he uh, couldn't speak English and he actually spears kangaroos in the film. And Holy cow. And then he suddenly went from this tribal existence to seeing the queen of England, having red carpet out for him. And you know, the legend was that he speared one of the ducks in a, in the lake and cause he was hungry, you know, and he, no and he met way. Bruce Lee and he met John Lennon and Bob Marley and, and he worked with Dennis Hopper in a movie. And at one point um, he got so freaked out by Dennis. He was just trying to drink himself to death. Like at one point the director found Dennis drinking old spice that um, David went off into the bush. Walk, it's called walkabout when Aboriginals go off in the bush. And in the middle of the shoot, and they, they had to get Aboriginal trackers in to find him. And they got him. And they said, "You know what were you doing?" He's gonna. I had to ask the birds and the and the trees. Um, what was up? What was up with uh, fucking Dennis? Holy and the director God. said, um, "What they say?" He said, "He's crazy." <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is wild, mm. dude. Um, what do you attribute that posture to that you maintain? About like kind of just you naturally wake up in the morning and feel gratitude for the position that you're in.
1: Yeah. But not in in a soppy kind of um, WSL, Eric Logan kind of way.
0: No, but is it, are you working to maintain that posture or is it encoded in your DNA? And if it is, where does it come from? Uh,
1: My mom, my mom was always very um, upbeat and and optimistic, but also a pragmatist. And I think that's the, you know, the position you have to have, you have to be pragmatic. You have to realize that, you know, cancer or sudden death or, or death of your loved ones, all those things can be just around the corner. So this moment is the greatest moment because none none of, none of those things hopefully have happened. So I always say, you know, you know, people go, I'm sad about this. Sad about this. Someone wrote a nasty word about me on Twitter or something. So fuck. Do you have cancer? You know, is everyone alive? You know, is the are you breathing oxygen? You know, are you happy? You know, they're, they're the things that really matter.
0: You say you have to have those things, but most people don't, dude. Most people live their life very differently than that. Or certainly in the society that I live in, where we're like sitting on the freeway for an hour every day, each direction, and everybody's in debt trying to just maintain some a livable lifestyle, you know, to own a home and stuff like that. Most people don't. Yeah, but have yeah, but you
1: know, I have everyone has their own struggles, you know. And it's funny because another job I did was with a um, you know, a billionaire Australian billionaire as a ghost written private job. But it's funny, you get to see all these people in all their different lives and no one's life really is that superior. The richest person's – I mean, I guess living on the streets of San Francisco is pretty fucked, but but the very basic things, you know, fresh air, good food, all those things, and enjoying moments. Like even in commute, you can be learning languages and listening to the most compelling New Yorker broadcast, you know. So it isn't, doesn't have to be a bummer. You know, everything can be pretty cool, you know, unless, you know, if you're in prison or something, it's not so cool. But
0: Even then, you could yeah. write – a book in prison, or do well, something yeah, yeah, meaningful. Yeah,
1: yeah, Friend of friend, a really good get friend of mine's in um, in prison, and uh, yeah, it's not that easy because you spend half your time trying to not get um, stabbed to death, and the, and a lot of the time, unless you're a long term inmate, they won't let you do um, university programs. Okay. And so I thought I thought it's same thing too. I just go there, and write some books, and write some thongs, and do an album, <laughs> get fit. <laughs> yeah, get fit. Yeah.
0: Um. So. Who was your mom? You said your mom instilled that in you. What what did she do? And
1: yeah, my mom was just a uh, she'd always worked in, um, in you know various roles, kind of in, you know, administrative kind of roles as, as mums sort of do. But one of those great mums who like she'd pick me up from um, from school and would sing the whole way home, and you know we'd just hang out together and we'd just sing, and everything was everything was great. And but but not great in in an airy fairy kind of way, just in a pragmatic thing, just enjoying moments together. What- single mom or no 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 my, my parents are still married my, oh, wow. my dad was an, my dad's an intellectual total academic oh really you no know, so it's great so my dad just sits down at the kitchen table and, and we just talk about politics yeah and he didn't push any of his biases onto us he just said they're all pack of bastards you know and uh and it would explain past the poll voting and preferential voting all these different systems and you know capitalism communism all those things he would explained to us and and uh, so I was, I was very fortunate like that interesting so uh, the detail
0: Like you kind of feeling optimistic and all that sort of stuff and saying like there's no, even the billionaires have their own plight, you know, and everybody in between. The one detail that I've isolated, and I could be wrong and I'm always reassessing it, is just feeling loved by your parents. Like if your parents both provide you kind of unconditional love and support and you can pick your path through life knowing that you have that. I think then you end up okay and you're generally happy and well adjusted. And it's the kids who um, have that as a deficit that end up, you know, ruining relationships and uh, even, you know, school shootings and stuff can kind of be tracked back to mommy and daddy didn't love me enough.
1: I, I I think a lot of that is society. I think if your parents put a roof over your head, they didn't bash you or fuck you, then they've done a good job. Honestly,
0: those are the basics. Yeah. You know, you That's don't, you, you don't need. have
1: to be hugged every go. I love you little man. No, completely. You know, that,
0: that actually can then become yeah, problematic. So, so I think
1: the problem has been too much self-reflection. I think people have too much idle time. Dude, totally. You know, you, you know, and it's, it's bizarre. It's fun, and the funny thing I noticed in America too, is the um, normalization of um, obesity, you know, watching MTV clips and The people who are obese, dancing, whatever, and that's, it's great, whatever, but it's, it's made to seem as if it's normal because it, it's a problem, you know, obesity is a problem.
0: Not only is it normal, you're not even allowed to criticize uh, somebody with an obese body because that's a hate crime.
1: Yeah. yeah. Like, but, and, I, 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 don't think, I, and I don't think we should be, you know, yelling at fat people, but uh, I don't think we should be celebrating obesity either. Right. You know?
0: So that is unique to America. You guys don't have that in Australia?
1: We do have it, but not quite the same level. I mean, Australia is 20 years behind America. Okay. It's funny, um, uh, governmentally wise, we were, we were very much like Europe and then we were kind of slowly migrating out of the American model. And it's funny, I go to France and they're like the Australia in the 70s, have a really regulated labour market. You can't, you can't sack anyone, so no one gets hired and, and wages are low and all those sorts of things. But there's a broad middle class. And Australia had that, but now it's kind of the middle class is shrinking and then you get the, you know, like you were saying with the, uh, you know, rich people and a lot of poor people.
0: Um, do you think that, how do you feel about gravitating towards an American model? Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
1: I mean, there's great things about America and, 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 it's, and it's the saddest thing about America is there's the splintering of all the, all the identity groups and, and people not identifying as Americans first and foremost, you know, because, right. because you have more immigrants in your country than any other country in the world. And yet it's held up to be the most racist hellhole on earth which is bizarre.
0: And anti-immigration.
1: Yeah, and anti-immigration, which is bizarre. No one pulls the Japanese up. No one pulls the Chinese up. No one pushes up, pulls the fucking Nigerians up and the Somalians up. But it's the British and it's the French and it's the Americans and the Australians who get thrown under the bus and we're all doing the best we can. And we're, we're if everyone, I think it works, if everyone comes and shares the same common story. You know, if I, if I wanted to migrate to France, I would think and become a citizen. Well, France is my country now. Yeah. And, and I think that that works. But I think when people come in and go, well, I'm proud to be, uh, 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 and you know, and that's my country, that's my flag, but I'm living in this country and and, and using it as an economic kind of base. Yep. I don't think that's very cool.
0: No, I agree. Um, I asked you how you identified earlier. And let me ask a different version of it is like, if somebody asks you what you do for work, not yeah. that anybody ever asks that. Yeah. We always use that example. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, you're at a cocktail party and oh, somebody no, I get says, it, what it, do you You get it a bit. People okay. go, what do you do? And um, and I said, oh, you know, I sort of, I sort of write. And then well, what have you done? And it's good now I've got the books because right. that's like something I can relate to. Because I, I, I hate saying I have a surfing website because it feels like it's like a hobby thing, you know, it's just a couple of longboards and this really badly made website. Yeah. You know, I want to say, fuck, this is a website that had 100,000 unique hits the other day. Yeah. You know, Chaz's story from the other day had 375,000 reads. Which story was that? It was a great white story at Cape Cod.
0: Of course it is. Yeah. Like a shark story yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to get the most. But yeah. can you believe that hundred no, thousand
1: hits in one day? You know we generally get sort of thirty-ish whatever, but a hundred thousand spike—that's that's traffic of three million, a, you know, a month, which is biggest than surfing. Yeah. So when you, people say what do you do, you do a surf website, it sounds lame. But if they only they knew, David.
0: <laughs> Imagine what they feel when you tell them you're a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but podcasting's pretty 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 hip now. So you tell them that you're a writer. Is, yeah, what, yeah. is how you identify okay because yeah. i mean like the vast majority of the surf world who knows you knows you strictly from
1: yeah writing but I, but writing. i wouldn't i don't i don't say right because that sounds like um you know sitting there in my garret writing poetry i'd say oh yeah i write i got a couple of books and- so here's
0: i'll give you my perspective of you and you can tell me whether i'm right or wrong um you don't write enough like i would i always Thoroughly enjoy what you write and it's among my favorite things. And I, I've always liked Chaz in the past, but now I'm oversaturated with Chaz. So when it comes to Beach Grit and I see an, a name on the, the author's name on the article, I'm eager to see yours because I don't get enough. But I actually wouldn't necessarily identify you as a writer. Knowing your history with Stab and now with Beach Grit is like, I think of you as more of a creative director. Like it's your, what matters most to me is your imprint on the thing. You know, yeah, I, yeah print.
1: that's that's definitely why I see my role with the magazines. I really enjoyed editing, and I and I love the process of interviewing people. But I love having an overall picture, but everything from from the fonts to the subheads yeah, exactly. to every single thing it has to be has to be absolutely perfect, which can be a problem with people who have to work with me because I have a picture in my head, and if they do something and it's just totally wrong, because my influences can't be from anything within that circle. So I have to find my, I have to find really obscure influences and through my own prism. Yeah. You know, like there's a, um, there's a great graphic designer, Swiss, ed- American born Swiss educated graphic designer from the sixties. I won't say who she is because you'll see where all my influences come from, but she, um, I'll, I'll tell you a sec but uh, she did the graphics for Surf Ranch, the, not Surf Ranch, uh, Sea Ranch up in San Francisco. I don't know. Up in San Francisco, there's this um, planned community, and I think it's in the '60s, and this on this big bluff overlooking the water in okay. Northern California somewhere near San Francisco. And that's where I heard about her. And she had this beautiful logo, and sh- she created this thing called um, Super Graphics. And so, um, so she's become a um, a b- big influence of mine. But I like to assemble a, a community of people. There'll be one graphic artist I like to use. There'll be one music person I want to use. There'll be one photographer I want to use. You know, and I get all these people and I feel like I can put, put them all through my prism and create something something cool, mm-hmm. you know. And I think um, sometimes you, you have synergies with people, like people with bands. You know, you have those particular guys made the Rolling Stones but by themselves they're shit. So with, um, it with Sam McIntosh, he really worked with Stab because he – I used to do the magazine and he'd do the, the big things. You know, he'd be spending the whole day looking through looking through shit, trying to find stuff, and I'd make the magazine from – start to scratch, edit everything, do everything while he was doing those big things. So we had these two really cool things happening. You would have the, you know, the uh, like a wave pool shoot or something and I'd be creating the magazine and we'd do it all together it and was, it was great. And then, uh, you know, Chaz, and we have, we have such a great synergy as well. So I'm really lucky that I've had Stab, which is really fun to start that from scratch and then to start um, Beach Group with Chaz. How did, how did you meet Sam and why start a magazine with him? Um, I, think, I think Sam liked my stuff at Surfing Life. And then he came and visited me when I was living in France.
0: What was his relationship to you? Was he writing at the time?
1: Uh, or like- I, can't I think he might have just started at Waves. As a writer? As a writer, yeah. Okay. But he didn't have a writing background or anything. But he's, he's a clever guy and he, uh, he, could, he could definitely turn a phrase. And I, I remember reading something he wrote on a surf trip. And I, and I felt like if he just had a, a good editor on his stuff, he could be, his stuff would be really good. So... Um, so I used to like his words, and then... Uh, he came and visited you in France. Yeah, he came and visited me in France. And I never, I never remembered it, but he... Were
0: um, you living in France? Or yeah,
1: I lived there for two years. I started a magazine over there called Surf Europe.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: <clears throat> so, uh, and then um, I came back to Australia in two end of 2000, and, um, and I was just sort of kicking around, and it was great. I was getting a retainer from Surf Europe just to edit their stuff, and I just had this great <laughs> job at a men's interest magazine, which I hated, but the money was amazing. Had a big office in the city and two assistants and a parking spot and all that sort of stuff. And then um, Sam asked me to come and work at Waves. And uh, I just needed, needed a hobby job to keep me off the streets sort of thing. So I just went in there and, and uh, worked with him there. And then he had, a, he had a bit of a falling out with the publisher at the time. So he got put into marketing. He got taken off the mag. And then, um, and then they asked me to edit Waves. I didn't want to edit Waves. So I just said, no, nah, I just want to keep writing stuff. And that's when Ronnie came in, Ronnie Blakey. And he, and he did that. And then uh, me and Sam had been talking about doing a men's magazine because at the time Loaded and Max and all those magazines had just really started to explode about 2001. And, um, and then I realised that it had to be surfing because that's what we knew. And to do a men's mag was just going to be out of our sort of field of reference. And then um, another friend of ours said, um, you should ask Billabong, to should pr- send a prop to Billabong to do a book on their um, – what an anniversary? 30th anniversary, I guess yeah. it was, yeah, for 2003. So put together this, um, this prop, and um, if we pulled it off, we're going to get a quarter of a million dollars net profit, you know, for a couple of months' work. Holy cow. So they said yes, and it was, it was a compelling sell to them too because they could get all these books. I think they got 20,000 books or something. And it was going to be net profit for them, so it was good for them too. And um, so they said yes, and Sam was still working. At that stage, I'd quit Waves. And uh, I just did the book by myself, so I, I filled it at all had a big budget. So I got Evan Slater to write stuff, Tim Baker to write stuff, everyone I knew. I said, but I need the I need the story, you know, in a week sort of thing. So uh, I had all these things in, and we got this incredible design company to do the uh, do the graphic design. And it had it was beautiful. It had this sort of fold over inside cover with shaped like a wave of the DVD with all of Jack McCoy's films on it. I think and wow. it was a beautiful book, and that gave us the money to start stab and um, and yeah, and that's uh, that's how stab started.
0: Fascinating. And it filled a really unique. I mean, I didn't even know that that void was missing in the surf world when Stab came in, and it just uh, absolutely like added so much color and richness to the space. Yeah, yeah.
1: Because we had we had some you know pretty good ideas, and I always felt that magazines should revolve around one kind of cover story. You know, other magazines feel like you know I got to have these little funny bits at the start and a little cartoon there and this this and the yeah, letters okay. and everything, and it just felt. So tired and, um, and not that we were breaking new ground or anything. I mean, initially, um, I remember we were going to Rusty to try and sell on some ads and they said, what are you? And I said, we are going. we're kind of the vanity fair of surf mags. And that was the initial thing. And then I, c- I can't remember, um, I think it was Moga from uh, Rusty said, no, no. Yeah. guys, yeah, you guys are like the, the fashion-y kind of cool guys and da da da." And I'm like, kind of oh, yes, <laughs> guess, guess we are. That's <laughs> and that kind of shaped it a bit.
0: How long was your run with Stab?
1: um so we started in 2003 july 2000 august 2003 the first issue came out february 2004 i think or january 2004 and i was there until 2014 but i i um i sold my shares i think 2008 2009 because i had half of it and we'd foolishly given 10 percent to this guy who was going to be our business manager and he didn't do shit and and i was kind of over it by then and then uh, and i felt like we're just going to piss all the money away anyway and um but then I, and then I left for a bit. So in 2009, you sold because of those things? You felt like it had been mismanaged
0: and you kind of wanted to uh,
1: – Yeah, mis- not not mismanaged yeah. on anyone else's part, my own part as well, you know. I just And also I feel like um, me and Sam at the time were in different places in our lives. I, was, I had a family and a and wife and Sam didn't, so he could enjoy the fruits of the company credit card more than me.
0: And also and, work probably longer hours and all that sort well, of
1: stuff. Well, I'm, I'm, not a, um, I'm not a believer in sitting at a desk for 20 hours and saying I'm a hard worker when I can go in there for six hours and do twice as much, you know. But um, we're just in different places and um, neither, I don't think it, neither, it, neither of us were wrong and uh, we're just, yeah, different places and it just felt like time that needed to get out. And then I left and I was going to do a, a magazine for a, a, a jeans company called Subi. I was going to do a magazine called Sex and Fashion. So that was my little kind of exit thing. And then they were going through this turmoil and that was kind of going, oh, next month, next month, next month. And then Sam was having problems trying to fill the editor, th- editor thing at uh, Stab. But,
0: sorry to interrupt. Who'd you sell your sa- shares to? It's uh, Stab or the, Sam to, Sam and,
1: and this other guy, a guy called uh, Harry Trescott. And that guy, what,
0: but he maintained 10% or he took more I think, ownership?
1: I think he ended up, uh, he must have ended up with 20 or 20% or something. I'm so least, uh, Sam's majority owner. Yeah, yeah, majority owner. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And then, um, and then later on, another guy came in, Tom Bird, who was a gun salesman. And he was the turning point for the commerciality of the business. Okay. And, and it, was, it was totally Sam's doing. He went and found Tom. I think Tom was working at the Sydney Morning Herald and found him. And, um, yeah, gun salesman, really driven, the, you know, the perfect salesman, you know, he was like uh, Ari Gold kind of guy. And, um, but, you know, re- lovely man and charismatic and perfect guy for sales. So that made Stab way more of a commercial enterprise. And then uh, so I stayed working there until two thousand. Thing. And then in, in between all that, I had a water taxi business. So I thought it'd be really cool to drive water taxis.
0: So you're actually the driver? You're not just the business? Yeah,
1: yeah well, I, yeah. Well, so I bought this shit boat. Oh my gosh. And um, so I didn't know all those classic things about boats that, you know, everything costs a thousand dollars to fucking whatever. So I, had, so I got this boat. It was a wreck, but it had a new engine in it, right? It's And it's commercial boats. Commercial boats are expensive. So I drove it down, with. The, I got this skipper guy, we drove it down from Sydney, and I'd driven down from the Gold Coast that night, because I'd been up on the Gold Coast, driven all night, it was, and I'd been out with Sam at North Bondi Italian, getting boozed, pulled up at this little harbour where the boat was, and the, and the skipper had loaded up all these barrels of uh, diesel and whatever, and I had my little bag of cheese and a wetsuit in case I had to swim for it. And, um, and then we left at midnight, and we got out of the Heads, and it was a hundred and something nautical miles to this um, place called Ulladulla, where the uh, yeah. boatyard was. And he picked this perfect night. It was about a two knot nor'easter, zero swell, beautiful night. Got out of the heads, and the uh, and the skipper guy just goes, uh, "Mate, just point it down towards those lights and wake me up in four hours." Oh and I'd, I'd never been out. I mean, I've been on boats plenty of times. I've so never been the the master of the vessel. And I started hallucinating. I was I was looking at um, tankers in the distance and um, and seeing people dancing and weird shit. Wow. And then after uh, four hours, I just woke up and I said, "Mate." And we we had to do four knots because we didn't know if this boat was going to sink. And as it turned out, it had a hole in it. It had holes everywhere. And we're plugging it with cheese and oh my and all gosh, sorts of shit. Dude. But we made it miraculously. We made it. And um, so we put it in or whatever. And then uh, I got the, and got the train back to Sydney. And it was, it was there for a year, the boat. And I remember that. And I remember having a twenty grand budget in my head to fit it out. And I remember the first time I went down there, nothing had been done. I got it had a bit, bit of sanding or whatever bits pulled off it. Seven grand. So a hundred grand later that I spent on it. They had this boat. It looked amazing. It had these cool graphics on it, and beautiful boat. It was so cool that Angelina Jolly hired it for a whole month, while she was in Sydney doing a film, just because of all the graphics on it. because It looked really cool. Oh, no cool, yeah. And then, um, but just the classic thing where um, I didn't know anything about boats. I didn't have my um, my ticket to be the um, to the main driver, and the company that I d- just do my training through they went broke. So I lost all my money there, and everything was everything would get co- – possibly go wrong would go wrong i was getting ripped off left right and center so in the end it was one of those sink cost kind of things and i said fuck i've spent enough and then i thought i know surfing i'm going to go back i'm going to cut myself off a little bit of real estate at this time i was still doing stab and so I thought, like, okay what can i do what can be my real estate and then i thought i'm just going to do an extension of stab this is going to be a bit a bit more cultural a bit you know edgy a bit more fun again and we am gonna have chairs i'm gonna have a hell time
0: and, and that was the founding of Beach Grit. Yeah, and I
1: thought we're we going to call it. I thought can't call it surf, so It's, it's got to be Beach. And I thought, what's kind of cool, beach, uh, beach Grit? You know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, Do you feel like
0: you executed that original goal?
1: Yeah, you did? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's exactly what I thought it would be too. You know, and then when the logo came back from my designer pal, it just looked incredible. You know, it was I hadn't seen anything like it before, and and then uh, I think I spent about six or nine grand or something at this company in Poland doing the doing the design, uh, doing the uh, back end stuff, and then uh, yeah. And it, yes, it hasn't exceeded my expectations. It's my expectations are pretty on point, but because it's, it's for us, it's our, it's our big thing. You know, it's going to see us into for out for a while. I think
0: what, uh, where have you, um, fallen short of your ambitions with it?
1: No, I haven't. <laughs> Cause we've got so many, you know, that's, I guess that sounds egotistical, like but I don't really have, I have expectations and everything I do, I try to do the best of our ability. And I, I like to do things that are world-class and I, yeah, I don't, th- I mean, there's, there's a million failures on the, on the way, but no grand failures, I don't think. Because every failure is an opportunity to learn something. Yeah. The stuff we've done wrong, done so much shit wrong. Yeah. And overstepped the line a bunch of times. But if you don't have to step the line, you never know where the line is. Sure. And if, and if you don't, you know, moderate, you know, the Oscar Wilde quote, moderation is fatal, you know, nothing succeeds like excess. You know, look at surfer, surfer.com. It's just, yeah. You know, yeah. It's nothing.
0: Well, uh, we'll come back to trip but I wanna go back to some of the timeline stab. Um, you sold early. Mm. I mean, in hindsight, you know, you sold at a time, and then years later, five, six years later, Sam sold for a reported lot of money mm-hmm. uh, to Surf Stitch, and they didn't do much with it, had a bunch of financial problems. Apparently, they sold it back to Sam, and so Sam's now in control of it. How do you feel about that? It's, fun- it's funny Do you I- feel like you sold too early? No, you have emotion I mean,
1: about it? I mean, it's like, you know, if, if your auntie had balls, she'd be your uncle. You know? <laughs> but uh, it's funny because I had um, this guy me and goes, oh, have you heard, you know, da, 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 Sam, you know, steps off for $10 million or something, whatever it was. It's mean, great because it, I, I wasn't responsible for that. I didn't – because I, I know the hard work that Tom and Sam did to get it to that point, uh, that level of commerciality and to be – all the meetings and stuff. Because they'd come to the U.S. for six weeks at a time sit in traffic and just go to meeting after meeting after meeting. And they called the guys from surf stitch, did all these things that I didn't do. I might've created the mag or co-created the mag, what do you want to call it? But I didn't do all those things that made it worth 10 million. You know, I, in hindsight, I, when I, I've, this is a business thing that you should learn that when you're going to sell your business, work out through an expert or somebody who knows this shit, how much you sell. I just it? Oh, I want X amount of dollars. And yeah. they went, sounds good. And I realized I could have had five times that. Right. But, but even that, you know, money money is so, money is so ephemeral, you know, that um, just goes through your fingers. And, but I had a lot of people kind of going, are you okay about the, about the sales? I was like, fuck, I'm stoked. Sam's got a young family and he's set for life. And, and Tom's a great guy and they, they did this amazing, you know, put off this amazing coup. And, um, and, and I was always pretty anti-bagging um, on stabbing. Um, beach it was something that me and Chase used to argue with a bit because it just felt like um, – because it was in my backyard for one – and for two, I just think it's a bad look to, to trash someone. But but also, but I trust I trust Chaz implicitly, and I trust when he goes over the over the line. In my opinion, I know there's a there's a, a benefit down the line. And also, there's a couple of things happening. You know, we heard that we had we had an advertiser call up saying, "Hey, I can't advertise on your site anymore because they're going to pull all that stuff from Surfstitch. And and we had um, a bunch of things like that happen. And I made a movie about Israel for stab before I left, and it had this opening scene and it had a bit of the Holocaust and and the and the creation of Israel, and whatever. And they cut it all. Really? Because someone, cause cause, cause a couple shit. of fucking anti-Semites are caught and saying, fuck, you know, Israelis and Jews and da da da, da. Oh da. And they panicked and cut it. Wow. And that bummed me out so much because I, because I developed a lot, you know, love for Israel and, the, and how brave those people were, those fucking handful of people in the kibbutzes fighting off the seven Arab nations. And, whether, you know, whether you're pro-Israel or anti-Israel, it did exist and the Holocaust happened. Yeah. But it cut it out of this movie and it set, set up this film, which is a really cool film, had Craig Anderson and all those guys in it. And then, um, so that's, that kind of bummed me out, but you know, and then when, you know, advertisers are being pressured not to, um, they're not the fucker chest of your life. Yeah. That, you know, that's problematic. So do you feel that
0: in stabs kind of commercial viability that they compromised any of the artistic or just kind of creative expression of the magazine was the commercial version of the magazine, a lesser version than when you felt you were contributing to it?
1: Um, well, I I think, um, media entities are purely the people who are operating it. Yeah. And I, th- I think when they were running um, – and you've and got to remember the architecture of the site, like most sites, is if they put a story up about FCS Finns, it's going to have the same same um, presence on the page as um, Sonny Garcia, you know, found almost dead sort of thing, you know. So it's, so it's weighting the new set of Julian Wilson FCS Finns against important stuff. So I think that kind of brought the site down a bit, but um, I, don't, I don't, certainly don't think they um, – um deliberately watered down anything i think it's just change of personnel that sort of stuff sure and um so you can have both things you can have both things you know and and it's and it's so cyclical too because you'll have someone who'll grow more confident in their job and start taking more risks and you'll see that so you can't have all this new personnel expect them to be have all this sort of dna in them about the brand and about the sport and whatever and um and it feels like um it's coming to a pretty good place with um like stab high i think brilliant mm-hmm and, um, not, not everything they pull off is, is great, but, but some of the stuff's really, really good. Yeah. Um,
0: let's talk about your relationship with Chaz. Um, I'll give kind of a short version and we've told it before. I don't know if you remember it four years ago or something. I interviewed you and Chaz together and we covered some of this. Oh, while the is post- library, huh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> with the train going by. So we've upgraded our surroundings or our studio space. <laughs> um, but. I'll link to that episode so listeners can listen to that to get the full backstory. But essentially, Chaz was writing um, freelance for Vice, I think Esquire, some other publications, and you had been a fan of his work. And so you connected with him and brought him in as a writer of that mm-hmm. Stab. And the story that I wanted to get your take on is kind of the most famous one, which is he wrote something about Mick Fanning. What did he, he call Mick Fanning? Is that what it was? Uh, Mick I'm Fanning, sorry. McFanning called Chaz the fucking Jew. Mick Fanning called Chaz the fucking Jew. <laughs> yeah. And Mick Fanning's main sponsor, Rip Curl, mm. is an advertiser in stab. No, they, or weren't, they weren't an advertiser. Okay, so I'll let you tell the story Yeah, <laughs> since so you uh, know the details.
1: Well, t- we sent Chaz to the North Shore to do a North, North Shore coverage. Very traditional magazine stuff, you know, to do, that, to do that sort of stuff. And it ended up being, I guess, the genesis for, for Chaz's book, so it worked out there. And, and um, of
0: the inertia, by the way.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, really?
0: The inertia spun off from that. Oh really? Cause Zach wrote the article about what you're going to tell yeah. for surfer
1: yeah. and
0: surfer basically made him delete the article. Like it was on the website and they were like, no, you got to delete that. We cannot run that. It's too controversial. Yeah. And so, um, Zach as he's Jewish, yeah. he's like, no, 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 I'm going to stand for what I know is right. Wasn't so so he, he, wasn't he pro Mick though in, in the story? I don't. I'm pretty sure he's pro Mick. I think either way. He yeah. was just anti getting told what to do <laughs> yeah. from Surfer Mag, and so he quit his job, and that was the impetus that's, that's for the inertia. Story. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Um, Look at your influence knows no bounds. Yeah. Right?
1: So um. So Chaz. So Chaz sent us. So Chaz, I, thought I was just talking to Chaz on the phone. He goes, in ha, his ha. sort of goofy, funny way, because oh, you wouldn't believe what happened last night. Big Fanning, um, fucking, started, you know called me a fucking Jew. And then when I was leaving the party, all these all these goons fucking <laughs> threw me against the wall, and then the gate opened and I ran away. And I said, Did "You call you a fucking Jew?" and He goes, "Yeah." I said, "Oh, that's the title." I said, uh, <laughs> "Tales of a fucking Jew." And um, you know, it's it's funny because you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'm kind of oblivious to um, sometimes to how sensitive society can be and how the, you know the confected outrage. And I'm, I guess you know now you know it's a lot greater than it was in 2000 and whatever year that was, 2010 or something? Nine? No, Nine. maybe less, maybe eight or something. And um, and so when I wrote I, I wasn't expecting any backlash, you know. It was just a thing the world champ had said to him. It was a funny little anecdote. And um, and Mick, living on the Gold Coast, wouldn't have seen a Jewish person in his life, you know. I grew up in WA and I didn't see a Jewish person until And Chaz isn't Jewish. Yeah, Chaz isn't Jewish, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and um yeah and so the so the story came out and then um i think it might have taken a while before anyone oh really sort of picked up on it yeah from from memory but then the um, it wasn't the jewish defense league but it was something like that they were sort of you know calling and then mick fanning <laughs> had this funny press release saying that uh he was being ironic because that's because stab stab was anti-semitic because the chased did the um fascist issue and it's funny story of behind that too and um and that he didn't oh no the best story of this the best thing about this was when it came out all the heat was sort of coming on and all i was worrying about was defamation that if he said he didn't say it and he was a world champion he had a case against us and he could send us fucking, really send us broke and then uh i can't remember how he found out but um uh his mum thought that Chaz's um phone was a voice recorder and his mum was quoted as something saying you know we we if he didn't have that voice recorder or something with him or, and he didn't, he just had his phone with him and that got us off the hook. And that's why he had to admit that he said it. Cause he could oh have said, gosh. didn't say it totally made up. Wow. Yeah. And then, uh, so, so we'll save the bell then, but then, um, but a whole bunch of people pulled their ads, Hurley pulled their ads uh, cause they were friends with Mick and, and a bunch of people. And um, we said, we'd pull the mag off the stands, but to be honest, stab never sold on the stands anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, it was, it was one of the time, yeah. you know, magazines, that's when I started to know the print was dead. You know, Ten years ago, new print was dead because you could just see it just going, just staggering. It's just like ah, oh, and we never, you could never really cut through, yeah. Unless did something, you know. So
0: those brands that aren't even affiliated with Mick, did yeah. they just threaten to pull their money, yeah, or they the, actually pull the
1: money? It. I think because um, I didn't know the business then, but I think Sam probably took about a quarter of a million hit, but a it million set up loss in advertising. Yeah, but it, but it did set up stab as the. Gave, st- stabbed $250,000 worth of free advertising. Right. Not free advertising, paid advertising. For sure, sure. And um, yeah, and just got to write a book about it. And I think it was probably good for Mick too to um, sort of examine his behavior when he's pissed. And, you know, I obviously Mick does some crook things. I remember mean, well, once, I can't even tell this story, particularly in this particular climate. But, um, you know, if you said it, it'd be a headline, you know. And <clears throat> but he seems to be a, um, a much sort of sweeter guy now. Yeah. So what was your thought at that
0: time? I would imagine... Anybody feeling that amount of pressure from their industry, their people that are bankrolling their business and all that sort of stuff would have to question how to handle that decision. What made you stick with Chess?
1: Oh, it wasn't even a question.
0: Wasn't? No. Why not?
1: Because he's good and, and it wasn't his problem, really. He submitted a story. I did the headline. It was the headline that did it. Oh, okay. You know, so, so you took responsibility. Yeah, hell yeah. And you I'm the did. editor. It was totally my responsibility. It's nothing to do with Chaz.
0: Was there a conflict between you and Sam at that time or how did Sam feel about it?
1: Um, Sam would get pretty panicked by a lot of the stuff I'd do yeah. and me and Chaz would do. And um, But but Sam's a smart guy. He, he could see the value yeah. in the stuff we were doing as well. But I think he would rather everything – and I, I, guess, I guess it's reflected in Stab now. He would rather everything was just – nice and calm. Sure. there's no fucking headaches. It was, just, yeah. it was just a headache, headache for him. And, um, so I think it was pretty glad when, <laughs> when I left, took Chaz with me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so he, yeah, he was, it was he, Sam was cool with me and you know we are all, all cool with each other. It was just, um, one of those things you just have to sort of get through.
0: Well, a lot's transpired since then. Um, obviously you leaving stab and then Sam selling it, Sam taking it back, all that sort of stuff. Where are you guys at now? Are you guys, Friendly, amicable, or was there ever in about
1: three years? Is there any
0: ever any bad blood? or you guys um, because the way that it's positioned for the viewer of all of Surf Media, yeah, is they're almost conflicting en- entities, yeah, and it might just be because Chaz is the one throwing barbs constantly at Stab, yeah, yeah. and not directly at Sam. I'm using yeah. Sam's name because you're friends with him, but yeah. um, Stab never throws any barbs back. Stab ignores it. Their policy is just kind of don't discuss. We slap, the bitch slap but that wasn't company approved. I don't think that was Ashton acting out on his own based on very personal kind of vendetta. Um, I don't it was think like, that was, like,
1: was like Christmas day when Chaz called me up and said that it happened. It was filmed. I filmed it. Oh, that your film? right. Okay.
0: Yeah, dude, I had a confrontation with Ashton five minutes prior and at the end of it, he's like, I'm going to let, I'm going to give Chaz, you know, a piece of my mind. Yeah. And I, I'm friends with Chaz, obviously, but I didn't feel any need to warn Chaz. Chaz mm. knew it was coming anyways, so we were all back in our area, and I saw Ashton enter the g- space, mm. and I stopped the conversation I was having. I'm like, hey, dude, I just got to pull out my phone <laughs> to film this interaction because something's going down. And uh, sure enough, Ashton delivered the goods. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: when, when Chaz told me, like, that's so good because it drives a week worth of stories and traffic and, Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. That's good. But anyway. Um, my relationship with Sam?
0: Yeah, and is he bothered by the fact that Chaz is constantly throwing barbs?
1: I think it's very. I think he's bothered by it, and I, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me too much. But I, don't, I certainly don't feel any um, animosity towards him, or and he's done nothing for me. I mean, except for getting advertisers to pull, but he's done nothing to impact on my life or make me sad or or anything. So um, I still like him. But, you know, I admire him. He's done a great job, and I think um, he's he, you know, he's the brains behind behind Stabs and none of the writers, because I think as you know as nice as they all are but everyone's pretty disposable but but sam's brand's behind stab and uh, and tom bird the uh the uh sales guy yeah you know because stab high all those things uh sam's ideas or he sourced it from somebody because i think stab in the dark came from a guy from quicksilver oh i didn't know that yeah but um but all those things just sam's doing you know and um and it's funny when you know when he's um sometimes he has a story in stab there's one recently about something but it's really good i think i really like enjoy his writing and yeah.
0: You know? Well, what about um, with Beach Grits specifically? What's your policy with bringing on new riders?
1: Yeah, I mean, everyone's welcome. It's just, just purely a meritocracy. So right. how
0: many, do you get submissions that get declined all the time? Yeah, or? all the time.
1: Yeah? I mean, everyone thinks they're a writer, and uh, some some people do have a natural flair for it. Yeah. And some some people, like Gen C, I love Gen C stuff. It's so beautifully constructed. Yeah. You know, and uh, and long-time stuff is great and, and surf ads is um, sort of coming on really well now. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people get into a real cycle of, of submitting stories and whatever. And Nick Carroll will submit stories every now and again and, and you know, get Warshaw stuff and Sam George and Matt George. and Yeah. So we had, we, it's become this little literary hub.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, it has. What's your... Um, how did the be, the uh, comments section... Was that part of the original kind of inception of the business? Did you ever see that becoming what it's become?
1: No, I think Negatron has been um, a big part of that. So he was... Um, uh, comment, he's a guy from New Zealand, plumber from New Zealand, and he was used to comment a lot on Stab back when Stab used to get comments on mm-hmm. stories. And um and I think he got tired of I guess he felt this the side had been dumbed down a bit and wasn't, you know, whatever. And so he he contacted me and said, you know, can I be your um moderator? So he came on and he created this forum that became so like he had he'd Take, you know, he'd um, explain to people why their comments weren't appearing and they'd do all these things and he'd shaped and he shaped this whole society where it's um, not just people saying, you know, I hate you, no, I hate you, sort of stuff. And uh, so I think Negatron really drove that. Um, was there a need for a moderator at the time? Had your comment section been kind of yeah, we had degrading? It, no, it wasn't degraded, but it wasn't, it was, it was fine. But if it was going to grow and grow in a, in a cool way, because comments can be as I said, you know, just pointless, or they can, they can just be a window into the, the greater part of that story, you know, Mm -hmm. so you have your 300 word story, then you have 2000 words below, just explaining the nuances and people back and forth, and it's, um, yeah, you know, you get some really fine minds in there. It was a really
0: unexpected, um, part of surf media for me that's, I enjoy now almost more than anything that I didn't see coming and I didn't see the value in and maybe negatron's the guy who deserves the credit for kind of identifying that there was something of value there and what it is for me is um when i was growing up all of my uh all my surf media would just trickle down from three sources basically let's say three media companies and five surf brands so everything that i got came from the top and it was like edited and curated for me and we've gotten to a point now where that's become a little bit more broader and there's more sources that it's coming from the comments section feels like i'm at the beach parking lot yeah it's now just everybody has an opinion everybody can chime in and i feel like if i'm um disconnected from surfing as i has been have been this last <laughs> two weeks where i'm not surfing that much and maybe i'm busy with work so i'm not even reading that much about it or watching that much about it i can kind of go straight to the comments section and it's like straight from the vein yeah. it's like this is what the general populace feels about a particular heat that just went down in a surf contest or a particular ad campaign that just came out in something
1: well, the great thing about it is you have people like Morris cole and nick carroll yeah. and all these people in there so it's, it's a very informed audience it's not just a beach parking lot right. it's like um it's like maybe it's like the pipe parking lot or something so they're all big names totally you know it's pretty uh totally packed field
0: and then there was really though the danger of it just becoming a lot of white noise and so yeah. maybe maurice's comment wouldn't even get seen but thanks to negatron it is it has become not only curated, but like people now respect the curation. Yeah. So they won't just lob out some thing just to be, you know, um, yeah.
1: obnoxious. It's funny, The um, I jumped in a couple of weeks ago and there was some stuff that was very actionable in Australia and defam- defamation. And I just jumped in, I was just banning people. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> doing, just deleting shit like crazy. And next time I'm going, what the fuck are you doing? You know, because he's got this this ecosystem, that he's created, and I just went in because I just think lose house, lose house, lose house, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> so do
0: you read every comment that comes through?
1: Um, pretty much, pretty much. I, I definitely read the ones on the um stream, you know, the open yeah. stream thing we do, yeah, yeah. And that was a that was a BeatScript reader. And I, I was trying to find his email the other day too because I want to thank him because it's been so successful. And explain said, what it is? So, you know, we have that thing where um, so we have a contest on so day one Tahiti, and we'll go comment live. So, what we'll just happen? So, just click on a story. And everyone will just be commenting live down below. So there's nothing technical to it or anything. And it was from, um, I think, NFL sites, they do it. Mm-hmm. And this this reader said, you should try and do this. And I kind of didn't really understand. And I said to James, our, our general manager, that, um, oh, I need to talk to Sean Burrell, our, our developer, to somehow do this. And then uh, I just realized, oh, we can just fucking put a story and just comment down below. Yeah. And it's been massively successful. So you have this, you know, this thing, you know, page on – on page you know Mm -hmm. analytics it's massive someone could be on the page for eight hours now not three minutes you know for the
0: entirety of the contest that's running
1: that yeah and you know well that you know and then you have two thousand comments which is unheard of in surfing right you know anything really except i think except for breitbart any other site that gets lots of comments is breitbart yeah ironically yeah
0: it's radical you guys have done a great job with that um talking about your role as like creative director i'm wondering if do you feel like beach grit Like, is even the right platform? Like, when you look at Stab back in the day, you had a physical magazine that you, and also the digital presence that was this kind of complete thing. I often think about um, albums, vinyl, or CDs when we were kids, where you get this thing and there's liner notes. And all the graphic design work is kind of imbued through it. Like, you actually feel substantial just because of the amount of work that's gone into it. I worry sometimes that a website isn't actually quite as robust to really express the full vision. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Are you concerned? Is there ways to bulk it out?
1: No, I don't, I don't feel it at all. It's just changing mediums, you know, like, you know, you go from, um, you know, stories around the campfire to, to radio, to television to movies and music and CDs and whatever. Cause you know, when CDs came out, it was the end of the world, according to some people. And, um, and I think um, you know, graphically, there's, there's, there's graphic stuff on there. And there could be graphics in our products because we have got products coming up. And um, I think the whole magazine thing is um, it's, it's it's not the death of the magazine, it's just the death of um, squandering precious resources printing that shit. Agreed. You know, and I and I don't think the tactile nature stuff is. I mean, people talk about vinyl a lot, but it's a lot of it's a lot of hot air because people talk about it, but the amount of people who actually buy vinyl, and who actually have a record player, who actually use their record player. It's kind of 1% of the people who are at a turntable, you know, it's just a lot of, uh, it's just a talking point, but I think people are quite happy staring at their phones. You know, it's funny. Spotify is introducing this new thing where,
0: um, they play a music video behind the song. There's actual moving visuals and it's not with all things. And it's also not the music video that they would be putting on YouTube. It's like a, they, they make one specifically and it's sized for your phone. Yeah. So it's tall. Um, but yeah, it was like I was listening to like a Jim James song and the thing started moving. It caught my eye and I look over <laughs> and it's sure enough, it's him singing and there's yeah. all this smoke. Yeah, and I was like, whoa, this is radical. Wow. I actually was inclined to watch it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't <sighs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I thought it was a, a smart little pivot on yeah. their part, you know? Yeah. Um, and then of course they could probably embed advertising into that. And that's like a mm. potential revenue stream. Yeah. Um one thing I'll criticize you're talking about being like um very cognizant of font and all that sort of stuff isn't the font that you guys use on beachgrid just the default wordpress font
1: oh you mean the body copy font yeah georgia yeah yeah it's not not a default font it's one of the one of the uh web fonts but i think georgia is a beautiful font i love that serif font and i love it's funny when i um i had a computer and for some reason i could minimize my um minimize my text editor to a certain size at 75 i had to be at 13 point and i think i was in tahoma I could only write in that font at that size and at that particular minimization on that particular program. And then that computer died and it didn't work on the new computers, didn't have that particular size. And then I was fucked. I couldn't write for ages. And it took me so long. Now I have to write Georgia at 14 regular. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, text yeah. edit. Um, what else, other than product, what else is on the horizon for um, doing, uh Doing a few side project movies. So we've got a um, last year we did this thing called the New Jersey Wetsuit Fairy Tale, yep. and we had uh, original oh, covers of Springsteen songs with with Vaughn Blakey and and so on. And, uh, and this year we're doing New Zealand, Once Upon a Time in New Zealand, and it's a guy called Luke Cederman. Do you know Luke from I the Reckless Surfer For? He's love funniest that. guy. So it's a time travel thing. So he's um. Wakes up in the morning, he's got a uh, to-do list. And one of the things is to go back to – one of the things is to do, do a combo turn, land in air, go back to 1984 and bring some modern wetsuits with him. He goes, oh, fuck, hey. And then he um, so he puts – he's got this – spray paints his car white, puts on some bubble wrap, and then he's in 1984. And that's the that's – the, Epic. Yeah. You guys have already shot it. Yeah, it's getting cut now. Jack Boston's our editor in San Francisco. And I was up there sort of working on that as well. And we got um, – I got Paulie B., who does all the um, sound production playing as well. And uh, one of those guys, he he did all the stuff for the Springsteen Jersey stuff. So he recorded three iconic New Zealand songs, rock songs from the eighties, because it's set in the eighties. So it's got this killer soundtrack. Amazing. Yeah, it's going to be really really good. So this all really bad. I don't know. <laughs> there's
0: a follow up piece or a secondary, second annual piece wetsuit. Yeah. Anything? So yeah, what, what you know, okay.
1: one, once a year we sort of a year and a half since we did the last one. But and you got surfboard reviews, separate um, reviews, and we um, we've got a um, Philip Toledo movie in the. Um, Sitting on the on the blocks, waiting for um, Felipe to get a ten foot wave at Chopes to finish it. Really? Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's like a, a profile piece. Yeah, so it's about um, it's called To Be Continued, and it's about Felipe, you know, dealing with head on with the challenges of learning how to ride ledges, and he talks openly about it, and you know, talks about his zero point heat, and um, and he's so likable in it. Jazz has seen it, and um, Sam, I got, I got Sam George to <laughs> do the interviews, and it's great. This um, we sat him in this room and had a projection of. Um, yeah, you know, wave of pipe. He nearly came out and got you know, got a right at the end. He would have got a ten. I missed it. A backdoor, amazing, the most amazing thing. And it's a piano, this beautiful piano score, and it's got him staring, a silhouette of him looking at this thing. And then he's just talking about this wave in minutia, who nearly beat Kelly Slater, the greatest of all time, at Pipeline on this wave, you know. And he really struggled with surfing ledges, whatever, and hasn't even gone to Tahiti, and but just didn't have the hasn't had, got the bang wave yet, unfortunately. So he's not afraid. So he's not afraid. No, he's not afraid, but he. He did grow up in you know where he grew up, and um, it has been a difficult transition for him. And he just needs to spend, and he has been spending time there. He's been there for about, he was there for about two weeks before the contest, and he went there last year for ages. And I'm not convinced. Yeah, but he's trying. Sam
0: did his job. I don't think Sam got honesty out of him.
1: Oh, you should. It's pretty. Sam's going. (laughs) Tell them you're not afraid. Fucking, just say it, (laughs) dude. I've seen the fear in his eyes. Seen him. (laughs) But he's 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 definitely trying. He's a very likable kid and. You know, I think he'll get there. Yeah. It is hard, but he, he isn't shirking the challenge. And you know, as you saw from that one really good wave he got, you know, he's got it in him and he's got the skills. He got one. That was it.
0: But he got one. He talked himself up to one. And then he had another heat after that with Seth
1: Moniz and he didn't go on a bunch of... I can't believe Seth Moniz was $2.50 to one. And I didn't know. Oh, yeah. I don't even track that. But that makes sense. But... If anyone knew anything about surfing, they wouldn't put yeah. um no, 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 no. and Seth Menezes is two and a half to one. Yeah. Jesus, could have been a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. That's my stab moment. That's why. That's why I regret every second of my life not betting on Seth Menezes in the heat.
0: By the way, I didn't ask you, but can you say where that Metallica piece will run?
1: Or do you? It does. You will see it. You will see it on Beach Grid. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and it's, it's going to be really fucking cool. Awesome. The Jack Boston, our guys um, doing it. with got some great talent on it. Okay, cool. And Metallica very very welcoming amazing stories yeah. very very funny stories and, and, and intense stories and yeah. whatever awesome and it's interesting those four guys you know he'd think they'd be the coolest whatever who would be salty but I thought Lars would be salty but he wasn't I thought Kirk would be kind of quiet and he was just very verbose and, and James is just has this most magnificent voice are you a fan of Metallica? Um, not really no no, neither. no but the one song I like is apparently the one that all the critics hate Saint Anger have to look it up. Yeah, it's an amazing song. I always liked it. But they said, don't mention St. Anger because it's not the critics' favourite, you know? the so, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. Full vowel moment. I like Laird Hamilton, Bethany. <laughs> Bethany Hamilton, I like Kelly Slater. <laughs>
0: awesome. Well, Derek, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, that. Thank it. you, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. BeachGrid's store is now live. T-shirts, air fresheners, which are available in the Heartbreak Beach scent, traction pads, all available. The coffee mugs actually are recently sold out, but you can get it all on BeachGrid.com. And then, of course, be sure to check out their latest film, Once Upon a Time in New Zealand, which Derek just told us about. Um, they review Vissla's Seven Seas Wetsuit, made more eco-friendly by using limestone-based neoprene, their carbon black, which is another key ingredient in neoprene, is made from scrap rubber tires from vehicles, car tires with worn tread that can now be repurposed or pyrolyzed is the term to make wetsuits, which actually cuts the CO2 emission by 200 grams per wetsuit. And of course, Visla has a full range of clothing and accessories. And perhaps best of all, they support a team of shapers, laminators, artists, they make films, and they even support podcasters. Visla.com is where you can find all of their work, or better yet, pick up Visla everything at your local surf shop. And everything that Derek and I discussed in this episode, from Once Upon a Time in New Zealand, to links to purchase Derek's books... And everything else are all available on surfsplenderpodcast.com. You can follow his current project and writing on beachgrit.com. And further, you could support our work and this podcast by sharing it with friends. It's a super simple way to help our audience grow. And then you can also rate and review it in Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use. That helps strangers to find it, and it also helps with our ranking in their respective charts. And then if you want more content, check out our other shows. I've got Spit with Scott Bass. I've got The Grit with Chess Smith. Surfboard Shaper Donald Brink has his own podcast, as does Scott Bass. All of those are available on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. There's more than 400 episodes in total, and they're all entirely available for free to binge right now. So enjoy that. I'll be back on Friday with Chaz Smith for The Grit and then back here next Wednesday for Surf Splendor. Until then, this is, of course, David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on.